midst of World War II, C.S. Lewis gave four radio broadcasts over the BBC, which would later be compiled into a book entitled Mere Christianity. This book inspired my journey to know why I believe what I believe. Welcome to Bear Christianity. Well, last week we ate our vegetables, and this week we get dessert. I have been so excited about this episode. This is the one that I've been wanting to get to ever since I thought of starting this podcast. So I'm really excited. So far in my journey, again, this podcast is my journey on why I believe what I believe. And so, so far, uh, we've covered that I believe in an eternal God who created the universe. So I'm not an atheist. And then secondly, I... That God, if that God exists, and of course I believe he does, then that God has a right to demand that I follow certain laws. And when I examine my own life, I have broken God's laws, and therefore I deserve God's judgment. So that's kind of where I'm at uh, as I'm I'm sharing my thought process to you here. So uh, that's where I'm at. I'm not an atheist. I believe that God exists, and I have broken his laws, and I deserve God's judgment. And so I want to start with a quote today. This is a quote from Richard Dawkins. He's a very popular atheist, the author of many books, and his his most popular book is probably The God Delusion. So Richard Dawkins says this, The idea that God could only forgive our sins by having his son tortured to death as a scapegoat is surely, from an objective point of view, a deeply unpleasant idea. If God wanted to forgive us our sins, why didn't he just forgive them? Why did he have to have his son tortured? That kind of gets at the the question that we're going to be asking today. So we've already mentioned this, but God's holiness requires that he punish all sin. He To simply just excuse sin without any sort of punishment would mean that he is not holy. So his, his holiness requires perfection. So here's the main question that I have struggled with in the past that I hope to, well, I know the answer for myself. I hope to, I'm sharing that with you today. So here's the main question. Because of God's holiness, he must perfectly punish all sin, but how can God show his love and mercy without compromising his holiness? And so if you're already thinking, wow, you know, he's jumping right into judgment and all this stuff. Go back and listen to last week's episode first if you have not. That will help a lot. So today I'm going to discuss two symbols in the Old Testament and how both these symbols point to Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Now remember, the Old Testament is the part of the Bible written before Jesus was born. And then the New Testament was written after Jesus, and it sort of it tells his birth and his life and then also the life of the church in the years after Jesus. And so that's the the difference between the Old and the New Testament. So we've got symbols in the Old Testament pointing to their fulfillment in Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Now, there will be more Bible verses in this episode compared to previous ones. And so just check the episode notes. I'll list all the references that I mentioned, and then you can look them up in the Bible for yourself if you want more details there. You can also connect with me at bearchristianity at gmail.com or on Instagram, at the real Bear Martin. And so those are both places where you can leave me a message, a, a comment, a question, a suggestion. I'm open to all of that stuff. So um, feel free to reach out to me, and I'd love to hear from you. 
I'm also really enjoying this special segment on our show called A Bear in the Woods. And so send in questions like this and if you want my opinion on them. So here's the question for the day. Bear, my kid's birthday party is next week, and I don't know what gift to give all their friends who come to the party. Any ideas? Yes, I do have an idea. Nothing. Okay? Now, I'm going to put on my old man pants here and say, when I was a kid, I do not remember getting a gift for going to another kid's party. I, I think it's ridiculous. Maybe I did get gifts for this stuff, but I, I, I don't remember. And so that just further proves my point. You don't need to get all these kids a gift for coming to your own kid's party. Now, the gift for coming to the party is like the participation trophy of social events. It only does harm. Here are the three possible outcomes, okay? So, either the kids like the gift, which sets the bar high for all future parties and makes other parents hate you, or the kid doesn't like the gift, and so they leave the party thinking that you're some sort of lame party host, or the kid is indifferent. You know, they could care less. They, they don't really care about the, the, the gift that you've gotten them. And you've just wasted your money on buying a pointless gift. So it only does harm. Now, give yourself a break when it comes to hosting your child's birthday party. Okay, You clean the house so that all these kids can come in and mess it up again. You fed them. You cleaned up all the spilled drinks. You untangled the balloon strings from the ceiling fan. And you'll spend the next 15 days opening toy boxes with all their little fasteners and plastic bindings only to find out that you need to spend another $100 in batteries to get all these new toys working, all right? You have done enough. Those kids will have a chance to get gifts at their own party. Just chill out, parents. Here's what you need to do at your own child's birthday party. Just show love to all those kids and thank God for blessing you with another year as a parent. Now, that's just my opinion, and I'm just a bear in the woods. At the end of last week's episode, I mentioned Adam and Eve. Most everybody is familiar with the basics of this story. So Adam and Eve disobey God and eat uh, the fruit that God told them not to eat. And that's a a whole, that's a huge discussion right there. But uh, so they disobeyed God and God had every right to kill them as soon as they sinned because God had told them as soon as you or, or when you eat or if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. So God had every right to kill them right then. But instead, God shows them mercy. See, they tried that when they ate the fruit, they knew that they had sinned against God and they were suddenly aware that they were naked and there was shame. That's a whole discussion too. So (laughs) there's a lot that goes on in this chapter of the Bible. But they tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. They, They tried to do things their own way. And we, this is a, this is the first religious act ever. So we are constantly doing you know, little religious ceremonies and just different things that make ourselves feel better. You know? And so there's, there's tons of religious practices that try to give us peace. And God tells Adam and Eve, the fig leaves will not do. Only the, 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 the way I provide will properly cover your sin. And so God kills an animal and covers Adam and Eve with an animal skin. Now, this sets up a theme that is huge in the Bible, and it's this. Something innocent had to die in order to cover the sin of the guilty. And that's what we're going to get into today. So our two Old Testament symbols that I want to discuss are the Passover 
and the Day of Atonement. So for the Passover, you can read about this in Exodus 12. Exodus is the second book of the Bible, and then in chapter 12, Israel has been enslaved in Egypt for roughly 400 years. And and so the, the Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, is scared because Israel just keeps having babies. And so their numbers are growing, and he's scared that his slaves are going to overtake the nation. And so he declares that any Egyptian can throw a, any male baby into the Nile River. So he, he deputizes the whole nation to seek out all male children of the Israelites and just toss them in the Nile. So this is just a wicked, wicked ruler, all right? Now, Moses is born during this time, and Moses is saved from being thrown into the Nile. And so God, you know, and there's, there's a whole big story there too. But anyway, God selects Moses, when Moses is an adult now, God selects Moses to be the one to lead the people out of Egypt. But Pharaoh refuses to let them leave. I mean, obviously, he likes his slaves, and so he, he wants them there. So God starts sending plagues on the land of Egypt, and some of them are so severe that Pharaoh sort of is like, okay, you know, get your people and leave, and th- but then he changes his mind. And so the 10th plague is going to be the final one, and the Lord instructs Moses to, to tell the people this, the, the people of Israel. He says, each household needs to select a male lamb that's one year old, that is spotless, without any blemishes, defects, okay? They're supposed to take it into their house, and then for four days, they inspect that lamb, all right? And I, I, when I think of this, I think about, you know, the lamb that's been out in the fields with the shepherd, and then he gets to, like, come into the house. He, he must be feeling pretty special, uh, kind of like your dog. If they have to sleep in the garage every night in their cage, and then suddenly you let them start sleeping in the bed, you know, they're, they're just pumped. Anyway, they take this lamb into the house, and then they're supposed to be inspecting the lamb, making sure that there's no spots or blemishes. But then on the fourth day, they're supposed to slaughter this lamb and spread the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of the house. And, it, and it's called the Passover because of this, because the Lord says, tonight I'm going to come over the land and pass judgment on the land of Egypt. And every house that is not covered, where the doorpost is not covered with the blood, I'm going to kill the firstborn of that house. And so the only way to avoid this judgment of God is through the blood of the Passover lamb. So Israel was in this hopeless situation, this this slavery under a wicked ruler, but God protected them from his judgment and all the while freed them from slavery. Because after this plague, Pharaoh says, get out. Uh, You know, I'm sick of dealing with your God and all his plagues. Get out of my land. And so that's when uh, Israel gets to leave. Now, the Passover lamb is pointing towards Jesus. And I am not just making this up. The authors of the New Testament realize this. So the, the first Christians were mostly Jews. And so they were very familiar with the Old Testament. And so when, when Jesus comes along, the first Christians are recognizing that all these things in the Old Testament, all these sacrifices are pointing to Jesus. And so get this, when the week that Jesus was crucified, if you've seen like the, the Passion of the Christ, that is, that is the days leading up to the Passover. So this Passover became a national holiday. Every year, the Jews would celebrate this. And so they, they've been doing this. This is bigger than Christmas, okay? So this is a huge national holiday. And so Jesus 
rides into town, you know, on the donkey and they put the palm branches out. We call this Palm Sunday. Then during that week, Jesus goes to the temple for several days in a row. And Jesus is basically being inspected just like the lamb was supposed to be inspected. So uh, here's here's a little story. So the, the Jewish leaders are coming up to Jesus and asking him questions, and they hate Jesus, and they're trying to trick him. They're, they're trying to expose him as a false teacher, and Jesus stands up to, to all these claims. And so they, they start asking him these sort of trick questions. So in Matthew 21, verses 23 through 27, you can read the, all the details of this story, but here's what happens. The Jewish leaders come up to Jesus and they say, by what authority are you teaching these things? Because Jesus uh, taught in, in such different ways than the Jewish leaders, and, and the people loved Jesus. So they say, by what authority are you teaching these things? And Jesus said this, I'll answer your question with a question. Jesus says, the baptism of John, so John the Baptist was a prophet, loved by the people. So he says, the baptism of John, was it from heaven or was it from man? Basically, is John the Baptist a true prophet of God or is he just kind of making it up, right? And so they, they, they start, you know, uh, talking amongst themselves as to what they're going to answer. And they say, well, we can't say that John the Baptist is from heaven, that he's a true prophet of God because John the Baptist was supporting Jesus, okay? So they can't say that because they, they want Jesus done away with. They want him exposed as a false prophet. That's what they think he is. And so they can't say that, but they also can't say that John the Baptist is just making it up because all the people loved John the Baptist. <laughs> and so they're stuck. And so they say, to, they say to Jesus, we do not know. And so Jesus, in like a mic drop moment, said, well, then if you can't answer my question, neither will I answer your question. And eventually, they, there's lots of different scenarios, and it's it's um, if you like debates and stuff, this is an interesting part of the Bible to read and see how Jesus is answering all these questions. Uh, eventually, it says they just quit asking him questions because they were just getting embarrassed over and over again. And so Jesus is is being inspected just like the Passover lamb was being inspected. And then eventually, Pilate, who's the Roman governor, he stands up before the people. They want Jesus crucified, the Jewish leaders. He stands up before the people and says, I, th- I find no fault in this man. And there's this, uh, th- this is a pretty popular scene that a lot of people have heard about. Pilate sort of washes his hands clean of Jesus' crucifixion, but he still has him crucified because the Jewish leaders are sort of uh, leveraging their, their power. They're, they're essentially scaring Pilate because Pilate was in trouble with Rome, and so he's basically in trouble with his boss, Caesar. And so the Jewish leaders say, we're going to tattletale to Caesar if you don't kill this man. And so Pilate decides to have Jesus crucified, yet says, I, I don't find anything wrong with this man. So it, you know Jesus is betrayed and wrongfully accused, and it's just a, a, a wicked time. And so that's what's happening there at the crucifixion. Now, when Jesus, the night before he's betrayed, he is having the, we call it the Last Supper. You may think of this, um, that, the painting by da Vinci, but the, uh, the Last Supper, Jesus is, is very likely having the Passover meal with his disciples, but Jesus changes up the symbols. So in Matthew 26, verses 26 through 28, I'm going to read these. It says, now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body. 
And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, you know, when Jesus is saying, Eat my body and drink my blood, that may sound really weird to you, but in that culture, they used symbols a lot more than we use them today. And so that's, that's, how, that's what Jesus is talking about here. Now, also in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul, who's a, a missionary, becomes, he, he was a Jewish leader and then becomes a Christian and, and a missionary and wrote a lot of the New Testament. He says that for Christ is our Passover lamb and has been sacrificed. So again, I'm not making this stuff up. The, the Christians recognized that this stuff in the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus, and it teaches us about what Jesus, is actually, what Jesus actually came to do. So the next symbol I want to talk about in the Old Testament is the Day of Atonement. You may have heard the phrase Yom Kippur. Jews still practice the, the Day of Atonement, and it's found in Leviticus 16. Uh, the, the issue, though, is that that most Jews today do not believe that Jesus was their true Messiah. So they're still going through some of these Old Testament uh, practices, and they don't see that it's pointing to Jesus. And so maybe a future episode on, on Judaism as well. But the Day of Atonement, atonement means a covering. And so if we turn that to a verb form, to atone means to cover, to appease, to pacify. And so this is the idea of sort of pacifying or covering over sin um, in, in an appeasement of God's judgment, all right? And so the, the Jews had a tabernacle, which is like a tent, and, they, and then what, later they would have the temple, okay? So the tabernacle and the temple serve a lot of the same purposes. This tent, the tabernacle, was used when the, when the Israelites were in the wilderness. They were sort of traveling around, and so just like, you know, of course, a tent, you can take it down and put it back up wherever you travel to. Once they got to the promised land and set up the, and, and, they, and Jerusalem was kind of their capital, they built a temple. In both the tabernacle and the temple, the center part, the most important part was called the Holy of Holies, and it was blocked by this uh, massive veil, this thick curtain. And behind that veil, inside the Holy of Holies, was the Ark of the Covenant. So if you've seen the Indiana Jones movie, the, the Ark of the Covenant is inside of there, and we're told in the Old Testament that God's presence would come and dwell on, you know, right over the Ark of the Covenant. So this was a, a very sacred place. And only the high priest of Israel could go behind the veil and only once a year on the Day of Atonement. And so only the high priest had access to God, and, and he went like on behalf of all the people of Israel, right? so, but only one time a year. And on the Day of Atonement, the high priest, who was a sinner himself and deserved God's judgment, before he could ever go in, he had to sacrifice a bull for his own sins, and then he took the blood of that bull and sprinkled it in the Holy of Holies. This was a way of sort of cleansing himself. And then uh, there was two goats. One goat was slaughtered, and that goat was killed, and the blood was sprinkled on behalf of all the people of Israel. And then a second goat which was called the scapegoat, was this, this is what happened with the scapegoat. The high priest would put his hands on the scapegoat and confess the sins of the people of Israel. And then the scapegoat was sent out of the city away into the wilderness. And this, the, the symbol here of the scapegoat is 
the, the sins of Israel are placed on the scapegoat, and then the sins are taken away from Israel. And so this was a, a symbol of what was happening, but it didn't actually take away sin. This had to be repeated year after year after year, and it was a constant reminder of the sins of the people. And, and basically, God is sort of saying, I'm holding off judgment on sin uh, you know, by way of this, this Day of Atonement each year. And so the and the priest was also performing daily sacrifices. I mean, the, the sacrificial system, you can read about it in Leviticus. It is it is intense and there there's a lot to it. So the priest was constantly busy performing sacrifices to to cover sin and to make people um symbolically clean so that they could come and worship God. So it, there was this constant reminder of sin. Now when we look at the Day of Atonement and then compare it to Jesus, I think this is what John the Baptist has in mind when he looks out and sees Jesus coming and he says this, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I, ha- I think John the Baptist has this in mind of the scapegoat who takes away the sin. The difference is that Jesus actually takes away sin. Uh, so the, the judgment of God because of our sin is taken away through Jesus. Hebrews 10, it, Hebrews is one of my favorite books of the Bible because it's in the New Testament, and it takes a lot of these symbols in the Old Testament and then explains them. Hebrews chapter 10 talks about this day of atonement and how Jesus fits in. It says, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. These were just, these were just uh, symbols, basically. The high priest had to go back in, remember, year after year. But, it, but in comparison, here's Jesus, the great high priest. Jesus entered once for all time, and with his own blood. So remember, the high priest had to to sacrifice a bull for his own cleansing, but Jesus had no sin. Jesus was perfect. So he goes in with his own blood as our great high priest. So he is both the high priest and also the sacrifice. All these symbols of, of the sacrifices point to Jesus in the New Testament. So he didn't need any blood to purify himself. He, his blood is actually the, the, the blood that cleanses us from our sin. And it also says that he, you know, the high priest had to go in year after year, and he was constantly busy uh, with all these sacrifices. But Jesus, the great high priest, he presented his own blood once for all time. And then it says he sat down at the right hand of God the Father. So in the presence of God, Jesus presents his perfect blood and then sits down. Now, the priest, the, the high priest in the Old Testament never sat down, especially not in the Holy of Holies. It was They actually put bail, bells on the bottom of his robe. And so the people, if they didn't hear bells jingling, then they, for, for a while, they would think, okay, maybe, the, maybe God struck the priest dead because he did something wrong. And they would actually have a rope tied to his ankle that where they could drag him out because nobody could go in the Holy of Holies. I mean, it was that intense of a time. And so you would, you would never just sit down and chill out in there. But Jesus goes in and it says he sat down at the right hand of the Father, and, and he is there interceding for us. But more on that in just a second. When Jesus was crucified, you know, remember there was this veil that was covering the Holy of Holies and almost like a, a, a blockage so that people did not have access to God, only the high priest and only once a year. But when Jesus was crucified on the cross, 
there was a, an earthquake and the veil in the temple in Jerusalem was ripped in two from top to bottom. And, and this, is, this is God saying essentially this system, this sacrificial system is done away with and you have access to me through Jesus Christ. Jesus is our great high priest and he is there. The Hebrews calls him the anchor behind the veil. He's always there. We're not just once a year on, on a special day. He's always there, and he's interceding for us. So this is what this intercession, interceding means. When Satan is called the accuser in the Bible, and Satan is constantly accusing your, you of sin to God, and he's saying this, God, if you're holy, then that person deserves your punishment. He's constantly accusing you, and Jesus is, is almost like your lawyer who says, you know, objection, no, wait. My blood has covered their sin. My, my blood has cleaned them from sin. And so when God looks at us in judgment, he doesn't see our sin. He doesn't see the sin of bear. He sees the perfection of Jesus because there's been this great exchange. Jesus is perfect without sin, and he gives us his perfection. And in exchange, he takes our sin. And so when God looks at us, he doesn't see our imperfections. He sees the perfection of Jesus Christ. So Romans 8 is one of the greatest chapters in all of the Bible. And the, the first verse, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then later in verse 34, it says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So, in closing, with the Passover, this is so important, only those who had faith in what the Lord said about you know, slaying the Passover lamb, spreading the blood on the door, only the people who had faith in what the Lord said and, and did that avoided his judgment. The lamb and the, the blood of the lamb was the only way to avoid God's judgment. They couldn't just do whatever they want. Moses didn't say, okay, tonight you know, uh, God's coming in judgment on the land. He's going to kill the firstborn. So everybody just kind of do something special to, to show God that you care, right? No, Moses said, this is what the Lord said. This is the only way to avoid God's judgment. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so Jesus is the only way. He is the only sufficient sacrifice to take away sin. And so some people, you know, for, may have told Moses, you know, killing a lamb and putting the blood on the door, I mean, that's just sounds a little crazy. That's ridiculous. Well, they were not thinking that the next morning. I'm sure the Egyptians were making fun of the Israelites as they, you know, they're, they're the slave masters and they're saying, what, what in the world are you guys doing? Are you getting all these lambs together and killing them and, you know, painting your houses with their blood? You know, but they were not making fun of them the next morning. Jesus, as our Passover lamb, we escape God's judgment, and also Jesus freed us from the slavery of sin. So in the Old Testament, they were freed from the slavery of Egypt and escaped God's judgment, and then some, you know, and that's, that's a, a symbol pointing to what Jesus actually does for us. Now with the Day of Atonement, again, only those who lay their hands on the scapegoat and confess their sins are the ones who have their sins taken away. So in the Old Testament, the high priest is sort of speaking on behalf of the people of Israel, and he puts his hands on the scapegoat, confesses the sins, and the scapegoat's led away. For us, 
it is only those who, you know, symbolically lay your hands on Jesus, your true scapegoat, and confess your sins. That's the only way your sin is taken away. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then again, I talked about this great exchange, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. It says, for our sake, he became sin. That's Jesus. He became sin who knew no sin so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. So that's a little wordy, but that's, this is what I was talking about earlier, how Jesus is perfect. He gives us his perfection and takes our sin. So he makes that exchange with us. That's what that is talking about. And so this, this idea of Jesus taking away sin and we avoid God's judgment, it is not some sort of universal thing. It is only It only happens for those who have faith in Jesus and who are saying, God, I'm a sinner, and the only way that I can be forgiven is because of what Jesus has done for me. It's not just some universal, oh, you know, God, God just excuses everyone's sin. For people who deny the, the truth about Jesus, their, their sin is still on them. The, the judgment of God is still on them. So to answer Richard Dawkins' question earlier, he's, you remember he says, you know, why can't, if God is God, you know, he's some, this all-powerful God, why can't he just forgive it? Why does he have to go through all of this stuff with Jesus? And, and, and uh, Dawkins likes to use language that elicits emotions, even though it's, it's kind of incorrect. But he says, you know, why does God have to torture his son? Um, you know, why, why that? Why can't God just forgive? Again, God is holy. And so Romans 3 talks about this, and it says this, so that he might be just, so, and it's talking about so God might be just. He might be maintain his holiness. He will perfectly punish all sin. So he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so when, when you have faith in Jesus and you escape God's judgment, God's just not you know, kind of looking the other way and giving you a free pass. God is saying, no, I, I have perfectly punished that sin it's just that Jesus took the punishment instead of you. So God is both just and the justifier of those, again, of only those who have faith in Jesus. Now, I usually close with a verse, and this time I'm going to close with five verses. And so in Revelation 5, this is something that ties a lot of these themes together and leads us into the next episode as well. In Revelation 5, John, the author of Revelation, has a vision of the throne room of God. And there's a lot of symbolic writing here. So as I read these verses, don't be thrown off by that. But there's a scroll which contains the plans for God's judgment and also the salvation of a certain people. And the angel, there's an angel crying out, who is worthy to open the scroll? Who is capable of executing these plans of God? Who's capable of judgment, but also of saving people? And it says no one in heaven or earth or under the earth was, was able to open the scroll. There's, you know, people are, they're searching out for this, this one who can execute this. And John begins to weep because no one is found worthy to do this. And then one of the elders around the throne says this, and this is in Revelation 5, starting in verse 5 and uh, verses 5 through 10. The angel says this to John, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And then and John sees this. He says, 
And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the world. So there's some of that symbolism I was talking about. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Now, this passage goes on to describe further worship of God and the Lamb. And there is a lot here, possibly a future episode there. But I want to go back to a particular phrase. Notice John heard about a lion, but when he looked, he saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Jesus is both the lion and the lamb. So Jesus, the conquering lion, voluntarily laid down his life as a sacrificial lamb. He died on the cross, but three days later, God raised him from the dead. This vindicated Jesus as the true Savior sent from God the Father. So you may be asking, Bear, you mean to tell me you believe a man was killed in one of the most brutal and public ways possible and then came back to life? Yes, I do believe that. Jesus was raised from the dead, and next week, I'll tell you why. 